Good morning. My name is Aaron Mahalachek. Today's scripture reading is John chapter 14, verses 8 through 14, which can be found on page 901 of the Black Pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible of your own or know somebody who needs one, please feel free to take one of the Pew Bibles as our gift to you. Again, that's John chapter 14, verses 8 through 14. Please stand as you're able for the reading of God's word. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Aaron and I didn't even mean to match, but it's just that's just how with this. Um, my name is Sergey Marchenko. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I uh, would like to make a couple announcements before we release the children. Uh, you heard in uh, Kevin's prayer that we are kind of gearing up for September 10th as fall kickoff, kind of the launch of ministries here. So please just be praying about that, be preparing for that, think about people you'd like to share the gospel with, with that kind of incentive in mind. Uh, there are several training opportunities in August, and they're listed in your bulletin for small group leaders, for uh, child safety, greeter training, and children's church teacher training. So please sign up for those and, and come to those. This is a great way to prepare for the fall. Also, there's junior camp, uh, so be praying for that, and then the youth lock-in, which is going to be this Friday and into Saturday, so please pray for that and send your kids to that. It's a, it's a great time for them to get to know each other and get to know Jesus as well. We have another exciting thing happening at Armstrong. Many of you have been praying for the Lord to open the door to that school, and it seems like the door is cracked open a little bit, and so we're, we're kind of pushing on it and, and see what else might happen. But uh, I realized I had a friend on the Armstrong PTA, and so, uh, so he is uh, kind of connecting us with the parents there. And, and there's a project that they're doing. They're repainting the playground, and uh, one volunteer is one help with that. So there's information on the city. I think the big day is Saturday, that they're going to do it Saturday morning. But with the weather the way it's been, it's hard to predict so uh, there's a contact information on the city that you can contact uh, one of the parents and coordinate with them or coordinate through me if you want to help even during the week without going on Saturday. There are other ways to help. But be, tr be praying that God would open that door so we would get to know more people in our community and help more people and, and have gospel conversations with them as we help. So that, those are all my announcements. Children between 2 years old and 3rd grade are released for Children's Church. And if you're visiting here with us today, you can uh, go that way into the foyer. There'll be somebody there to tell you where you can take your children and what they will be doing. 
All right, so I would encourage you to keep your Bible open to John 14. We're in the midst of our summer series. Uh, we still have a few, few more sermons to go. We're looking at conversations Jesus had with different individuals throughout the Gospel of John. Each conversation helps us in two ways. One, it helps us to understand better who we are and how Jesus is dealing with us. So we find ourselves in different characters in the Gospel of John. So maybe you can identify with Nicodemus or with the blind man who gets healed or uh, uh, different people or Mary or Martha. And so we're trying to understand how Jesus is dealing with us and that's helpful. But secondly, it helps us to learn how we can relate to others and have the kind of conversation that Jesus would have with them. So it's both towards us and it's towards others that this sermon series hopefully is, is helping us. This morning we're looking at a passage where Jesus who's about to be arrested and put to death, is speaking with Philip, one of his disciples, who's trying to make sense of what is about to happen. So I'd like to look at this passage into three headings, three things I'd like to notice here. There's a big ask from Philip. He's asking to see God. There's a big reveal from Jesus. He's revealing that he is God, in fact. And finally, there's a big promise that applies to immediately to Philip, but also to us as well. So a big ask, a big reveal, and a big promise. So let's work through that. When I was a, a child growing up in Ukraine, uh, I had one very specific dream. I wanted, uh, this is probably like six or seven, eight years old, and I remember just falling asleep, just dreaming, maybe waking up and under my pillow, there's a hundred rubles and a real pistol. That is all I wanted in life when I was seven. My mind could not embrace a bigger dream for me. I just figured if I would have a hundred rubles, that would take care of all my needs forever. And if I had a pistol, nobody would ever mess with me. That's the mind of, of a child. You know, that's, that's all I wanted. Now, Philip has, has a much bigger dream here. He's not as limited as I was when I was seven. He, he's asking just about as big a thing as you can imagine. In fact, I, I can't imagine anything bigger, but again, I'm the guy who imagined a pistol and a hundred rubles, so you have to keep that in mind. Philip is asking Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. Show us the Father. And, and then he adds, and, and that's enough for us. Like, there's nothing else. If you could just, if you could just show us God, we'd be totally fine. No more questions to you. He's asking the biggest thing imaginable. He's saying, we want to see God. He's asking for something that mystics of all religions and over the centuries have all wanted, have all longed for, is this vision of God, a direct experience of the divine. To finally be able to say, I know God exists because I can see him. I know he speaks because he's speaking to me. I can hear him. I don't need to question anything anymore. I, I know him. I have experienced him. I know what he is like. That's what Philip is asking for. He's asking, show me God. Show me God. Now this is in the midst of Jesus saying, I'm leaving. You don't know where I'm going. And then he says, but you should know where I'm going because I am the way and I'm going to my Father and I'm preparing a place for you. He's talking about all this and, and the disciples are very confused. Now they know who the Father is. They know God is the Father. That's how Jesus has been talking about God. 
But they're not sure what's happening here. And so Philip just kind of cuts through all of that confusion and he says, just, just show us God and that would be enough for us. If you just do that for us, we will know everything that's happening. We will have no more doubts. We will have no more questions. He wants a direct experience of God through his senses. He wants to see God. This is a similar request to the one that, that Moses made in Exodus 33. That was our call to worship passage. Moses also asked God, please show me your glory. It's the, sa- it's the same desires, the same question. Show me yourself so I know what you're like, so I know who you are. I can experience you directly through my senses. Show me your glory. Now certainly Philip knew that passage. He also knew, I'm sure, that throughout Scripture and all the record of Scripture, God never really showed himself to anyone. Even to Moses, you remember in that passage, God says, you can't, you can't really see, see me. So I'm going to hide you, and I'm going to pass by you, and then I'm going to lift my hand just enough so you can see a glimpse of my back. That's as much as you can handle. And this is one of the more direct interactions of people with God in Scripture. Now you have the mystical visions that, that some of the prophets had. You can think of Isaiah, seeing God lifted high on the throne. You can think of Ezekiel. But those are highly symbolic visions. They're not, that's not really a direct vision of God. That's, that's a vision projected of God to a person to communicate something about Him. Every time someone is interacting with God in Scripture, it's, it's through some sort of a mediator. It's, it's in part, it's, it's hidden or obscured by something. Sometimes a supernatural phenomenon like a pillar of fire or a cloud of smoke and that's God's presence, or God's glory descending on the temple. and so, all the, so there's a lot of interaction with God in Scripture, and yet it's all partial, it's all obscured, it's all through a mediator like an angel, or, or sometimes a priest. And yet Philip is still asking for that. With all that background in his mind, knowing that, that, that God said in Exodus 33 that you can't see me because you will die if you see me, and knowing of all these different visions in Scripture and all of them being partial, all of them being obscured, and all of them being difficult to interpret, he's still asking that Jesus would show him the Father. Now Jesus is about to depart. Philip is concerned. He wants clarity. And so he simply says, show us the Father, and we will be all set with that. I think in some way Philip is verbalizing a universal human longing, right? I bet all of us have, have felt something similar to what Philip is, is feeling. I just, I just want to see him. I just want to know for sure he exists. I want to know for sure he is like this. I want to hear his voice with my own ears. I just want to know him. I want a direct experience of God. This is what Philip is asking. Now this is a huge request. As I said, in Scripture that has never really happened to the extent that Philip wants it to happen. This is a big ask, and yet Jesus responds to it. And in fact, I'm going to claim fulfills that request. So let's look at the big reveal that Jesus does here. Verse 9, Jesus says to Philip, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Now I'll come back to the gentle rebuke a little later. We'll apply that in a little bit. Listen to what Jesus says next. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 
Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Philip, show us the Father when you have seen me? This is Jesus' response. You have seen God already. You're asking for something that has already happened in your life. You have seen God because you have seen me. You know God because you know me. You heard God because you heard me. You know God exists because you know I exist. Verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Here Jesus is pulling back the curtain on the reality of the Trinity. Three distinct persons. And by the way, after this passage, Jesus is going to talk about the Holy Spirit a whole lot in the next few chapters. Three distinct persons. And yet, one divine essence. The Son is not the Father. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. But the Son is in the Father, and the Father is in the Son, and so on. You cannot have one of them without the other two. If you know one, you know all three. No one person of the Trinity functions independently from the other two. Now for some of us, you get into this, the depth of the Trinitarian teaching, right? And it gets, it gets hard. It's mysterious. Why is Jesus talking about that? Why confuse us even more by that? I can only find one answer to that. Simply because this is how God is. This is what God is like. God is a trinity. And the reason we believe in the trinity is not because we have invented it. There's no reason to invent it because we don't really understand it. And it's confusing to anybody that you're talking to about God. So the only reason, in my mind, is that God is really this way and God has revealed himself as the trinity. And Jesus is simply describing himself and he's describing his relationship with the Father in the words that Philip in us can understand. So while this response does warrant a conversation about the mystery of the Trinity and meditation on that and trying to figure that out, let's not miss the straightforward point that Jesus is making. Philip asks, show us God. Jesus says, I am God. He says, you wanted to see God? Here I am. Look at me. This is the answer. So Philip says, show me God. There's this great existential longing for the divine. And Jesus says, it is fulfilled in me. And I'm right here. You're looking at me. You're talking with me. I am God. The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. That's the answer. But why does it sound to us like it's that fulfilling <laughs> to Philip? He's certainly not jumping up for joy. I mean, he's, he's trying to process all of that. And so Jesus says, this is why you should believe what I'm saying to be true. So let's take a few minutes and address those who are struggling with this idea that God is Jesus and Jesus is God and this is what God is like and the Trinity is like that. What would convince you to believe that it is true? Here's what Jesus says. He gives us two reasons to believe. Verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. So believe me that I am, so believe what I'm saying, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else 
believe on the account of the works themselves, or else believe based on my works. So believe my words, what I'm saying, or believe my works. Let's examine Jesus' words. Scripture, the written revelation of what happened with him, what he said. Read what Jesus said, and then ask yourself, do his words make sense if he is not God? Does it make sense what he says if he is not, in fact, God? I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Your sins are forgiven you. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Does any of this make sense unless he is God? Who else can say these things unless they are really God? Before Abraham was, I am. Does it make sense unless Jesus is God? When you talk to skeptics, most skeptics would say, I embrace Jesus' teachings. I like what he is saying. I like the moral and ethical teachings of Jesus. That's a good thing to follow Jesus as he teaches us to live. And so they make a distinction between what Jesus said and embracing that and between what we say Jesus is like or what he did and rejecting that. And yet my challenge to the skeptic is, read his words. Because he didn't say what you think he said. Besides the moral and ethical teachings, there are many, many claims to divinity. There are many, many claims to power over your life. There are many, many claims to him being a sacrifice for your sins. You see, it's easy to say, well, I I like Jesus the teacher. But what did he actually say? What did he actually teach about himself? And in my opinion, an honest reader of Scripture cannot walk away from the Gospels thinking Jesus is anything less than God himself. So examine his words. And that's, that's my open challenge to you. And I, am, I would be thrilled to sit down with you and read the Gospels with you. And work through it and answer your questions and ask my own questions. I'd be thrilled to do that with anyone. Because I'm confident that Jesus' words point to the kind of person we know him to be. God himself. That's one way to believe in him. Another way is to examine his works. Based on what Jesus did, who do you think he is? Based on what he did. Jesus says, okay, if you don't believe my words, I'm telling you I'm God, you don't believe me. Believe me on the account of my works. Look at my life, look at what I have done, and believe me based on what I have done. He says I am God, but then he also does works that only God can do. Believe me on the basis of what I have done. What Jesus is saying in his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his return, he's saying, I am God. Here is God. Look at me. I am God. All his works point to his identity, which is why John talks about his signs. You know, these these works that Jesus has done that are signs to who he is, to reveal his identity as the one who came to redeem the world. Now think about what happened in Jesus' life. Think about the prophecies that led to his birth. Now you look at that, that's a work, right? A baby is born based on the prophecies 
hundreds of years before that predicted his birth. And we look at that and we say, this is, this is God. This is God in his omniscience. This is God who knows everything. For God, it wouldn't be hard to organize events in that way. For us, it's miraculous. For God, it's, it's not difficult. We look at the child in the manger and we say, here's God. God in his simplicity and beauty. We look at Jesus' teachings, a 12-year-old kid talking to the scholars of the temple, and they are marveling at him. They're saying, this is, this is wisdom. And we look at that and we say, this is the work of God, this is the work of Jesus, this is God in his wisdom. We look at Jesus' healings, and we look at him healing the sick and feeding people and embracing people that no one else has embraced. And we say, this is God. Here is God in his compassion. This is what God is like. We see Jesus taking the side of the oppressed. And we have to say, this is God. Here is God in his justice. We see Jesus turning water into wine. What a great passage. This is God in his joy. Saying, there's a feast prepared for you. And I'm here to bring that feast to you. We see Jesus talking to Nicodemus, this, this teacher of Israel, and we see God in his truth, just so clearly and simply explaining the truth to Nicodemus. We see Jesus raising the dead, and we must exclaim, This is God in his power. Who else has power over death but God himself? Remember the triumphant entry. Jesus riding into the city, welcomed as a king. This is God in the beauty of his holiness and his majesty. We get to the cross and we see Jesus writhing in pain, Jesus dying for the sins of the world, and this is God too. Here is God on the cross paying for the sins of humanity, the people that he loves. This is God in his steadfast love. This is an expression of God's attribute of steadfast love, faithfully loving his own, even unto death. And then the resurrection. God triumphing over his enemies. Here's God. Jesus has come to reveal God, and he's saying, look at my works. This is God. This is God in this world, triumphing, over the world, sin, and the devil. And then the ascension, God in his faithfulness. Jesus leaving heaven, done the work, and yet leaving to work more for us, and saying, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be there and I will, I will intercede on your behalf. I will be your advocate with the Father. I will make sure that your salvation holds God in his faithfulness. And Jesus promise to return. That's another work that is still coming. God in his sovereignty. God on the throne. God coming to restore everything, make everything new. This is God. It's, it's God coming in Jesus. And this is what Jesus is saying. Look at my works. If you don't believe my words, if you doubt what I'm saying, look what I have done. What else can you conclude but that I am God who has come to save this world. 
Let me press you a little bit. If you're not a, if you're not a believer, and I'm, I'm happy you're here, you should be here, and I'm so happy that you get this message and you get to hear about Jesus. But let me press you a little bit. I don't want you to stay comfortable in your unbelief. Based on all of this, his words and his works, what will you do with him? Who do you think he is? Nothing less than God can fit the evidence of his works and his words. I was listening to Ravi Zachariah's sermon. I've been a, a bit of an Ravi kick lately, so I, I quoted him last week. But he, he said something that I think most of us would, would say and agree with, that the longer I am a Christian, the more coherent and rational and put together and, and sensical Christianity appears to me. So the more I live in the reality of Christ, the more his words make sense, the more his works fit together, the more it feels like it's right that this is the reality that I've been made to live in. I think he's right. The more you're a Christian, the more you walk with Christ, the more you discover who he is, the more you see God. And the more you know what he is like based on his works and based on his works. Let me address the believers now so you don't feel left out. We see a gentle rebuke in verse 9. And I want to emphasize gentle. Jesus loves his children. Jesus, he doesn't break the bruised reed. And so he ministers to us in a gentle way. But there is a rebuke here. Jesus says to Philip, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me? Philip, addressing him by name, knowing who he is, in a relationship with him. Jesus says, I've been with you for so long, and you still don't really know me? Philip should have known that God has revealed himself in Jesus. Right? He should have. As you read all the things that Philip saw and Philip heard from Jesus, you are wondering why he's asking that at all. Especially because Thomas just asked basically the same question two verses before. And Jesus says, I and the Father, and the Father are one. No one comes to the Father except for me. And here comes Philip. Show me the Father. And so Jesus gently rebukes him. And he's saying, you've been walking with me for so long, but you still don't really know me. You haven't really been paying attention to my words. You haven't really been paying attention to my works. And so this comes as a rebuke to us. How long have you been walking with Christ? And do you know his words? And do you know his works? as you have lived in this reality of Christ since your conversion, and some of us grew up in Christian homes, that's always been around us, the question is, do you really know him? Have you really been growing in your knowledge of him? Are you really embracing this reality of Christ in your life? Now, it gets really practical really quick, right? Do you know scripture? Do you read scripture? It's a great question to ask to find out how well you know Jesus. These are his words. And he says, believe me, believe what I say, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. 
How do we know that? We know that from here. So the question is, do you know it? Do you read it? Have you committed yourself to learning about Jesus through Scripture, through an ongoing conversation with Him, through Scripture and prayer? How well do you know His Word? The second question is, how well do you know His works? Is He working in your life? Are you experiencing Jesus? Or is it only a matter of a creed that you, you subscribe to? Is it a living relationship with God where you can say, believe Jesus because of the works He's done in my life? Look at what He has done for me. How can He be anything less than God? Is that your experience in your own relationship with Him? Augustine, this, the great African bishop, late uh, 300s, early 400s, in his confessions, laments that he had missed out on life with God before he got converted in his 30s. Got converted when, about somewhere in his mid-30s, I think, and he... He is processing that with God and he is lamenting that he missed out on those 30-some years without God. Now, how different does that sound to many of the people today who are saying, my ideal scenario is to live my life in the world and then at deathbed, right, accept Jesus so I can go to heaven. And Augustine is saying, if you know God, this is a ludicrous idea because you have missed out on all that he could have done in your life. Augustine regrets that he pursued God's gifts without God. That he didn't recognize that he was really seeking God even in his pleasures. It's it's an amazing, honest reflection on his spiritual journey. Listen to what he says, the beautiful passage from Confessions. He says, Too late have have I loved you. Too late have I loved you. O beauty so ancient and so new, too late have I loved you. Behold, you were within me while I was outside. I was there, it was there that I sought you. And a deformed creature rushed headlong upon these things of beauty which you have made. You were with me, but I was not with you. They kept me far from you. He's talking about pleasures of of life. Those fair things, which if they were not in you, would not exist at all. So he's recognizing those were gifts of God. You have called to me. You have cried out and have shattered my deafness. You have blazed forth with light and have shone upon me, and you have put my blindness to flight. You have sent forth fragrance, and I have drawn in my breath and I pant after you. I have tasted you, and I hunger and thirst after you. You have touched me, and I have burned for your peace. What do you do with sensual language like that? And by the way, this is biblical language. Read the Psalms, read the Song of Solomon. This is, this is the language of our spiritual experience with God. Augustine is saying, I went hungry for 30 years, and now I can't get enough of this new food. I missed you for 30 years. I thought I was going after something good, but I, I missed the best thing of all. Now, this, this is a testimony of someone who understands what life with God is like. 
And Jesus says to Philip, you've been with me for so long, and you still don't really know me. And Augustine would say, how can you waste all this time? How can you not have listened to him and looked at his works and gone to know him better? That's a gentle rebuke to me. That's a gentle rebuke to us. Are you growing in that relationship with Christ? God has graciously called you into that relationship. Are you growing in it? Are you pursuing Christ? Like food, like water. You're saying, I just, I, I'm hungry. Pant after that. Burn with your peace. I mean, that, that kind of language. Is it the language that you identify with in your own life? Don't, don't leave today and just go back to the same kind of indifferent, lackadaisical life. Embrace Christ for who he is. He's God who's come to see you, to be with you, to be known by you. Grow in that relationship based on his words and his works in your life. Finally, the big promise. Jesus makes this big promise, and I'm saying big promise, but it seems like there's a couple of different promises, so I'll I'll try to pull it all together. I think it's all one big thing here, verses 12 through 14, so let's read it, and then I'll break it down and hopefully show you how it all fits together, I think. Verses 12 through 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Okay, let's take it line by line. First, followers of Jesus will do the same works that Jesus has done. That's one promise, one aspect. Followers of Jesus will do the same works that Jesus has done. Second, they will do greater works than Jesus has done. Same works, greater works. And third, they will receive anything they ask for in Jesus' name. They will receive anything they ask for in Jesus' name. All of that is going to happen when Jesus departs to be with his Father. That's the promise. When I leave, Jesus says, you will do the same works as I'm doing. In fact, you will even do greater works than I'm doing. You you will exceed even what I'm doing. And anything you ask in my name, I will give you. So let's work through it. What are the works that Jesus is talking about? Now, I've already described them. Those are the works that Jesus did. Those are redemptive works. Now, it's easy to to see this and say, oh, he's talking about miracles. Jesus did miracles. We're going to do greater miracles. I don't think that's limited to that. I think it's part of it, but I don't think it's limited to that. What Jesus is saying is you will do the same kinds of works that I'm doing and the works Jesus did pointed to him as the Messiah of the world, someone who is God coming into the world to save us, to help us to heal. And we will do the same kinds of works. Now miracles are included in that, I think. Whatever Jesus did, we would also do similar things as the same works of the same quality. I think he's talking about bringing the kingdom in. I think he's talking about spreading the identity of the glory of God, bringing the renewal of the world. One preacher, Dick Lucas, um, a London preacher, he said that he thinks that John uses the word works for what Jesus did, for all the activities of Jesus, because he's thinking about Genesis 1 and God creating the world, God working and then resting, 
God working to create the world. Now Jesus comes to recreate the world. And that's another work of God. There's a renewal and restoration that comes through Jesus. As God worked in creation, so he worked in Jesus in recreating, redeeming, and renewing the world. That makes sense to me. So what are the works of God? Those are the redeeming works. Those are the works that bring life into this world, redeem and restore this world back to God. Whatever that means. Some of them were miracles, absolutely. Some of them were regular works that we would do to bless God and bless others. But whatever we're doing towards the goal of bringing redemption into the world, to glorifying God, is the same kind of work that Jesus did when he was on earth. So in light of that, what's the promise? We will do the same works, and then we will even do greater works than Jesus. Now here's what I think Jesus meant by greater works. I think he's talking about the scope of our activity. The scope of our activity will be much broader than Jesus' activity on earth. So that's greater works. The same works, the same kinds of work, the same activity as Jesus was involved in. Now the scope is broadened. And so now we're doing more in many more places to many more people. That's the life of a Christian. To follow Jesus and do what he wants done. Dallas Willard in in Divine Conspiracy talks about discipleship. And he says, discipleship was really doing what Jesus would do had he been in your situation. You're doing the same works that he has done. Now, it's a little bit different from asking the question, what would Jesus do? Because you have to put Jesus in your situation, in your circumstances. But it's the same kind of mechanism. It's the same kind of thinking. What am I doing as Christ's disciple here where I am? Because when we talk about works and greater works, it's, it's, it's so easy to think, oh, this, this is this ministry, this is miracles, this is this great things, right? And it could be that, sure. But more likely, it's living life as a disciple of Jesus in your home, in your neighborhood, at your school, with people around you. But living as a disciple of Jesus who is committed to his words and his works. Now, this is the kind of life Jesus is promising to us. And he's saying, you will do the same kind of stuff I'm doing. You will also bring healing. You will also bring truth. You will also bring God's glory into the world around you. And you will even do greater things because the scope of your activity is going to be much broader. Now, what Jesus started, we have to put it in perspective. You read the Gospels, and what Jesus started in a very you know, limited place in Palestine with a, just a, a few dozen people that were following him on a regular basis, right? Not many. What he started has turned into a global movement that has transformed cultures, has toppled empires, has welcomed billions of people into the kingdom of God over the centuries. Those are the greater works. Now, it's fascinating to see if you read Luke, Gospel of Luke, and then you read Acts. And you see the similarities, the same kinds of works, but you will also see the greater works, how it's expanding, the influence of Christ is expanding through the book of Acts. Luke ends in Jerusalem. 
Acts ends in Rome. Right? Now the whole empire has been affected by this message of the kingdom that Jesus brought. Now let's go back to verses 13 and 14 to see if we can make sense of that last part of the promise. Because so far, I think it makes sense. But then Jesus says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. At first glance, it seems to me like a totally different promise. He's talking about ministry and life of discipleship and serving God and glorifying God in your everyday life. And now he's saying, now about prayer. Let me tell you about how prayer works. It seems like he's shifting gears. Now, I, I don't think he is, but I think at first glance, it seems like this is a different promise. Here's how many Christians take these verses. As I am doing the works of God, maybe even greater works, maybe even miracles, I can ask for whatever I want, and as long as I ask in the right way, with the right amount of faith, the right formula, while obeying God, He will give it to me. So if you take it that way, this promise of answered prayer is a perk. It's an incentive to obedience. It's, it's a bonus. It seems like, at first glance, that Jesus is saying, go and work for me. And, you know, since we know each other, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. So as long as you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, make sure you, you pray in Jesus' name, and then I'll give you whatever your heart desires. If you take it that way, you will really struggle with this verse when you try to apply it. Because I don't think it works. And so then we find these convoluted explanations of why doesn't prayer work? But I'm going to offer a different interpretation of this. What if we place this, these two verses in the context that they're in and keep them there? What is the context? Jesus is saying, I am God, here I am. Listen to my words. Look at my works. I've come to redeem the world, to bring glory to the Father. And now I am recruiting you to believe in me based on what I'm saying or based on what I, what I did. And now that you have believed in me, I am sending you out to do the same kind of stuff I've been doing, bringing redemption into the world. I'm sending you out. And you will, in fact, even do greater work. So your task seems even greater. And then he says, whatever you ask in my name, and name stands for the person of Jesus, his words and his works. This is not a formula. This is saying I'm coming in the name of Jesus based on who he is, his character, his works, his words, as God and Redeemer of the world. So I'm coming through that channel. And he says, this I will do. I will answer your prayer. And of course, he will do anything that reveals God to the world and redeems it. That the Father may be glorified in the Son, so that God is glorified in the mission of Jesus. This is what I think Jesus is promising here. As we do the works of God, even greater works than what Jesus did on earth, the full range of God's power and authority, the full spectrum of God's resources are available to us. 
Now place it in context. Jesus is saying, as you go out and do my works and you pursue the mission that I am committed to, whatever you ask, I will give to you. Why? It's his mission. He is sending you to live the kind of life that he has lived. And he's saying, all my resources are available to you. All my power is available to you. So you will accomplish great works and even greater works. Let me give you an illustration of that. Imagine you work for a multinational global company that has outposts in many countries of the world. And your boss comes to you and says, we want you to go to this particular city in a particular country that's pretty far away. We want you to represent our company there and, and work on behalf of the company and open new markets and, and, and do advertisements so our company becomes more well-known and well-liked in that part of the world. You go on our authority. All the resources of the company are behind you. You take your family. We'll try to make it as comfortable as we can for you there. We know that's not home, so it's going to be a little bit different. But we're going to make it as comfortable as we can for you. And by the way, anything you need, you can call me directly, and we'll get it to you as fast as we can. Now, in the context of the assignment, that makes perfect sense. Jesus is sending us out, and he says, you are going on my behalf, in my name, whatever you need for that, for this life in reality of Christ, for this life in pursuit of the redemption of the world, I will give you. That doesn't just mean I'll fulfill your ministry needs, I'll fulfill your personal needs. Whatever you need to accomplish those greater works, God will give you. Because he himself is accomplishing those works. This is his work, this is his mission. So as we go, the promise is all the resources and all the power of God are available to us. We just need to ask in Jesus' name. One last thing and we'll, we'll close. How is it all possible? How is it all possible? Well, we have to go a couple of verses down, verse 16 and 17. This is crucial, again, the context of this passage. Jesus says, I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The promise is that as Jesus departs and goes to the Father, he will send the Spirit of God with all the resources, with all the power that is available to God, and now this person will dwell in you and he will accomplish these greater works through you. This is not an empty promise. Jesus isn't saying, just go work for me and just, just believe, just obey, just go. No, he's saying, go and the Spirit is going with you. And remember all that talk about the Father is in me and I am in the Father? The Trinitarian closeness? Jesus is promising that to the believer. This is an, a mind-boggling thing. That he's saying, I'm in the Father, the Father is in me, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who will be in you. The world doesn't understand him. But you know him because he is in you. He is so committed to you and the mission of God that God that you have longed to see will always be with you. As close as as he possibly can be. 
That's the promise. That's the big promise. Philip says, show me God. Jesus says, I am here. And you will live this different kind of life if you believe in me. This life would be marked by great works that you will do for me, even greater works than I have done. And you will accomplish all of that through the Holy Spirit. And so you don't need to doubt that resources are available to you. All you need to do is just ask in my name, and the Holy Spirit is there providing for you all the time. So I'll leave you with the challenge. Is that the kind of life we live? Do you believe in Jesus in that way, based on his words and his works? You have now embraced this different kind of life. And you're saying, I am going to follow Jesus into these kinds of works. Like what he did, I will do. Even as the scope of his influence is broadening. Do you live as ones who have seen God and heard his words and experienced his works and participate in his ongoing work of redemption? G.K. Chesterton said, this is a famous quote by him, he says, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. I think Chesterton is right as it relates to most of us. We haven't really tried living the Christian life the way Christ describes it for us. We haven't really drawn on the resources that he has promised to us. We haven't really embraced the mission that he has come to accomplish. So as you come to the table, would you do that? Would you resolve to live like that? And if you're not a believer, come to Jesus. Come to him. Don't come to the table because everybody else is. But come to him and see him for who he is based on his words and his works. God who came to save you. God who loves you. God who wants to give you a totally different kind of life now and into eternity. We're going to take communion as we sing. And you're welcome to take communion right in front and leave the cup here or take it back to your seats if you need more time to reflect on the gospel, to look into your own heart, to repent, to confess, to rejoice. If you're unable to come forward, an elder will bring communion to you. We want you to participate with us. So if you're new here and you can't move forward, just raise your hand and one of our elders will find you. If you're in the balcony, there are tables set up for you there so you can just walk forward where you are and take communion there. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for who you are. We praise you that you've allowed yourself to be seen by us in Jesus. That as close as a human being can get to God, we have gotten in Christ. The God-man mediating bringing us into the presence of God and giving us the Holy Spirit, God himself, to dwell in us and to dwell among us. Dispensing this new life, new divine life, full of purpose, full of power, full of joy.
Lord, I ask that you would help us to embrace this new life that you've given us. Let us embrace this new life because of Jesus, because of what he said and because of what he has done for us, because of the cross, because of the resurrection. Let us embrace this life and let us do the works that Jesus has done and even greater works as you push us out into other areas of life, even as we think about our community and engaging more with them, even as we think about our families, people at our schools, people at work, our neighborhoods, even as we think about what you're doing in so many other parts of the world, and we can be supportive of that and connected to that. Lord, use us for your glory. And strengthen our faith to believe that all the resources are available to us to live the way you want us to live. Holy Spirit, come and do this work in our lives. We're open to you, but we know that we, it's impossible for us to do it on our own. And so empower us, fill us, so we can live in the way that pleases you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let's do it together.